Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. So if you're a regular listener to this show, one of the things that you might have heard me say before is that I I believe artists just fundamentally look at money a little bit different than other people out there in the world. Um, And I know we have a lot of artists listening, so maybe you're shaking your head agreeing or maybe you're cursing my name. I don't know, but I really believe it. It's just been my experience that artists, um, they don't look at money as as, um, something that they have to have, that they have to make money off of their work. And, you know, they just have a different perspective and it can make it hard for artists to make a living because it's sometimes difficult for them to ask for money for what feels like should be a gift or... Um, or it's difficult for them to understand how to value their time as opposed to value what the artwork itself is, right? If it takes three months to, to make a painting, then you should probably be paid for that three months at least, right? Um, well, this is something that you hear not just from me, but I think a lot of people in the art world talk about this. But our next guest, uh, Dr. Dr. Roberto Goya Maldonado, um, is actually a psychiatric researcher who is, is asking this question from a very clinical perspective, from a very experimental perspective. Um, and it turns out that there actually might be something different in the chemistry of an artist's brain that, um, that makes them respond very differently to financial rewards. So stay tuned to this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, if it gets a little technical in the beginning, please bear with it because Roberto is a scientist. So it's a, you know, the experiment's technical, but the conclusions towards the end are really interesting. And um, Roberto is is a very committed, uh, passionate guy. So I think you're really going to enjoy this, this listen. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Thank you to listeners for another uh, for tuning in to another episode of State of the Art, um, and this week is another another interesting guest. Uh, this time coming you to you from the world of psychology and psych research, um, and so our guest Roberto Goya Maldonado is that am I pronouncing that correctly? By the way, doctor. Yeah, that's correct, <laughs> <laughs> or close enough for an American. <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs> um, so. Uh, so, Roberto, uh, you're focused on research in the world of uh, r- sort of rewards and how the human brain responds to rewards. And it seems like the question that you're interested in is, is there actually something intrinsic in the artist's brain that might make them uh, sort of more prone to or less prone to to be interested in financial rewards? Is there actually sort of a, a chemistry of the brain that uh, that causes artists to be poor? So um, obviously, we have a lot of artists listening, and, and I think they're going to be really interested in what you have to say. So um, if you don't mind, I'd love to start with just, can you give a little recap of, of the study that you've worked on um, in this rewards world? Yes, I would do that very happily. Um, I wanted to mention, though, that this is a uh, initial um, study, some preliminary results here in Göttingen, in Germany, 
And at the university uh, here, we came up with the idea of using a task that we uh, developed uh, to investigate patients generally in the psychiatry uh, to evaluate how possible uh, their reward systems would be impaired by certain uh, disorders that they are facing. And um, by discussing this with the group, uh, we realized that it will be really interesting to use this exact same task to evaluate how the brain of artists would react to monetary rewards. Um, because we all know that artists um, from all different fields are generally very spontaneous and creative people. Um, they um, basically get in contact uh, with many other people and like this interaction. They like to express their ideas and this self-expression area of the creativity is uh, exercised frequently, so almost every day. Um, we also know that artists are characterized by um, not really uh, paying too much attention on um, what is in their wallets. So uh, do they really earn a lot of money or not? Sometimes it doesn't really matter because um, by they, their gratification sometimes comes come from really other sources um, then, um, that will be more related to this creative work. Mm. Um, so what we did is um, we have many, many artists um, contact and we could recruit a sample of 12 artists that uh, were um, enrolled in the study together with um, 12 known artists and um, this known artist would also come from um, many, many different areas of um, um, work, so different um, interests. And uh, we made sure that artists would classify themselves as creative, whereas this controlled known artists would not Im imagine themselves as very creative people. Um, we had them paired for all other demographic uh, possible variables that could be playing a role, such as gender, age, or uh, education levels. So they were equal in that sense. And um, what we do is um, we initially have to uh, condition people. So with an operant conditioning um, phase, which in other words means uh, we give them a task uh, to freely explore um, squares with different colors. And then they quickly learn that by pressing buttons to certain colors, they will be rewarded and cashing, they will be cashing more money after all. Hmm. And um, this is uh, a very, very important initial phase because this is going to be uh, relevant for the activation of this um, yeah, reward-related areas in the brain afterwards when we are imaging them. So you're, if I understand you correctly, you're building up a reflex. You're, you're, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's, that's, you know, I, I'm a very, have a very pedestrian understanding of modern psychology, but that's sort of the Pavlovian reflex that you're building up at the first stage. Yeah. 
It is exactly that. So um, what we do is um, just like ringing the bell and having the dog salivating. We <laughs> not not we, that we're calling artists dogs, by the way, but <laughs> not at all. Uh, but we do this to everybody. So yes. uh, we it's the it's the uh, intrinsic first and easiest way of our brain to learn things. Sure. And uh, by reinforcing certain. Um, um, behavioral responses uh, by just simply doing uh, giving rewards, uh, we increase the chance of somebody engaging this basically in this uh, activity or behavior. And this is one of the first important and simplest ways of learning. And this is how they learn that every time that they press the scholars in the task, they will be cashing uh, in more money. Right. Uh, so following up, uh, they learn from us how to basically perform the task. There are two conditions in this task. In, um, in one condition, they uh, are allowed to cash in this additional money from the colors that they were conditioned in, into. Uh, and the second condition in which they are not allowed to. And in the background, we're running another task. So it's called a delayed match to sample task. It's a simple task just to keep people uh, tuned in with their attentional and memory resources. So uh, we give two different colors and they um, have to, in the beginning of the block, uh, more or less keep in their mind which colors they are. And whenever they appear, they have to press this one. Hmm. Gotcha. This is just to keep their attention and memory at the base uh, levels. And then in the middle of this performing task, we will um, offer them this conditioned task, uh, colors, stimuli, in which they can or cannot select. Right. Um, so when we build up... Uh, this, this uh, understanding and then, then we check this, uh, we are ready to go into the scanner. So uh, we have everybody um, laying down in this, uh, what people know to be the, the typical MRI machine. So it's this tube uh, where a magnetic field uh, is created. And every time that we have pulses of ra radio frequency inside, you can uh, evaluate and measure um, the perfusion, the blood perfusion in certain regions that were activated. Hmm. And therefore, one can actually measure uh, the exact amount of activation specific regions. So is that, yeah. is that clear so far? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, yeah, yeah so that... I mean that part is is sort of the the modern twist on the whole thing, right? I mean you couldn't have done that that fifty years ago where they're just sort of um, studying the behavioral parts of the study, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so that is actually a very very interesting point that you make because um, what we did in the scanners a lot a lot of other um, researchers also did from the behavioral part. And they uh, couldn't really uh, understand because sometimes there was no variation. But frequently, when people were asked to be creative, um, upon receiving money for that, 
um, they they just had this typical artist block, so they couldn't really move on and could not be creative spontaneously hmm. by certain demand. So we decided to, uh, as an initial step, to keep that out. So we did not want them to um, deliver um, or exercise any part of their creativity in that. We just wanted to measure basically how their reward system would react to, um, yeah, monetary stimuli. Sure. Start with. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're, if I understand correctly, then you're sort of able to simultaneously capture, um, this, this imaging data, um, as well as the behavioral data that's, that, implies the actions they've taken and stuff like that but the real the interesting part the modern part that you guys are bringing to this is you're actually watching what regions of the brain are lighting up as they're making these decisions is that correct is that a fair synopsis yeah that that's correct yes and what what is the significance to um sort of the areas of the brains that are lighting up Mm -hmm. um we understand and perhaps the reward system is one of the best described systems um, in terms of imaging. Um, we uh, advanced a lot in the last decades uh, on just trying different um, tasks and understanding how our brain uh, coordinates reward. Um, the, the interesting part is that uh, there is a core where dopamine, a very important neurotransmitter, is created and that is released in other areas um, according to the um, expectations of of receiving or not receiving reward. And we know that the second area that I just um, mentioned now is called um, nucleus accumbens is very important region for coordinating uh, what is uh, related to, to reward in our perception. And um, it's actually lighting up, as you just said, the moment that we um, achieve a certain uh, pleasurable um, uh, stimuli, such as hearing to music that someone would enjoy Hmm. or um, even cashing in more money. Uh, Other parts of the brain uh, that were also interesting uh, to evaluate, such as the prefrontal cortex, are... um, areas that generally um, control the activity of these other regions by um, our consciousness. So if we know that it's not correct to feel um, happiness in a certain situation that socially is inadequate, these areas would just suppress this and actually keep our behavioral in a a normative or, or correct way. Um, so this this builds up an intricate uh, system that is uh, very complex but very fascinating, and this has to be very well. Um, uh, it has to be very well or- orchestrated so that we are able to feel pleasure when it's up to feel pleasure and happiness, hmm. uh, excitement and motivation but also to suppress this when there are moments in which we are not really supposed to. 
And this task builds up exactly on this because uh, there are moments that spontaneously and instinctively we'll have the um, impulse to pursue this additional monetary um, cues that would lead on to extra money after all. But in the second um, condition of this task, as I mentioned, in which you have to suppress this, the system has to be also really well fine-tuned. So you will not allow uh, that to take to take place. So basically that you will suppress this impulse. Mm. And this is exactly um, what we're seeing in this experiment. What we see is that artists in the first phase have a lower activity in this um, acceptance of uh, rewards, monetary rewards. Um, however, take place, they generally have this active prefrontal regions more um, um, strongly pushing down the system to, to acceptance of rewards. How, um, however, interesting to mention is that no differences in the behavioral data were seen. So um, artists and non-artists were similarly fast and accurate to perform this task, hmm. meaning that um, they were equally engaged on it. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's – so if I understand correctly, I mean that's – the behavioral data that is really there to make sure that someone is, for lack of a better term, bought into the experiment, right? Like that's the behavioral yeah. piece of this isn't telling you a whole lot other than are they trying, are they paying attention, are they being active and responsive, or are they just kind of here to sit here for 10 minutes and say that they were in a study? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 In that sense, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then it's really interesting because if I understand you correctly, there's the, the two different phases where you're talking about um, suppression of the impulse versus sort of activation of the impulse is, um, is interesting because what you're saying there, if I understood correctly, is um, there's sort of how, how eager is someone to say, yes, give me the money. But then the suppression step is, um, to what extent is someone willing to delay uh, sort of give me the money now for more money down the line? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly that. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot like the the famous uh, marshmallow experiment with children, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what we did. Yeah. It's, In that sense, it was interesting to evaluate how um, monetary rewards to at least my uh, interpretation did not really engage the brain um, as much as maybe marshmallows for artists, but... <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's it. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and so what... So, and then the results, I mean, so I, I understand and uh, obviously appreciate that you're an academic, so, you know, I understand this comes with all the warnings of this This study was small and, and probably somewhat incomplete, but um, so what were your overall findings with res with respect to um, those two different pieces, the, the suppression of the impulse and the impulse itself? Mm -hmm. um, I think it sheds a new light into an old discussion in psychology, which is... Um, are artists really um, reacting differently to um, monetary rewards in specific? So, um, and 
does this perhaps uh, somehow has to do with um, creativity itself? Because there are two crossroads in there. Um, it is known that this neurotransmitter I mentioned before, dopamine, is very, very uh, relevant for uh, learning and for motivation and reward. Uh, but it's also been associated with uh, creativity itself. Hmm. So perhaps um, there's something about um, this subgroup of people that is very special about being creative and not bothering too much about, uh, you know, I don't know, having a, a good bank account or, or something like this. Yeah. Or um, maybe... Uh, you know, not preparing for the future, but basically leaving the the now and uh, yet um, um, this moment. Um, I I don't know, but that's basically um, an interesting um, question. Also regarding um, being creative, which we could not explore yet, but uh, maybe there are there is really an inhibition of the spontaneity the moment that you put money down the line. Hmm. And this will be also very, very exciting to be explored. So uh, one of the things that I'm really curious to get your perspective on in this, you know, obviously um, <laughs> there's sort of the academic parts of these studies and then there's sort of the philosophical, well, what do these results mean, right? And mm -hmm. one of the things I'm interested in is I, I think it's clear to say that to call artists unmotivated wouldn't be accurate. It's it's more accurate to say that they're not motivated the same way that other people might be specifically for financial gain. So if that's the case, do we know anything about what what would replace that sort of financial motivation? I mean, what is it that um, actually does make an artist care to, you know, what would motivate them to hit that green block or whatever it is? Well, I would love to measure that. Um, in this first approach, as I said, we use the monetary um, cues, so the, the stimuli. Yeah. Uh, and I discussed this in this study. One of the things that I would assume, I don't know, out of my uh, intuition is if I would have instead of money offered hours in a nice atelier or um, mm. invitations to beautiful venissages or interesting uh, people or workshops or interaction or material that they could use, this would probably have another significance. And we then talking about different values. Um, I assume that, um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't mean at all to say that uh, there is a difference in the motivation itself, nor, um, yeah, the um, involvement in specific uh, task. But I think what is here to be questioning is what is the value of money, really? Yeah. And I'm sure that there are absolutely a lot of uh, other more interesting things for artists that we could have uh, used and perhaps this will be also a um, yes a way of exploring that hey everybody i'd like to pause the episode here for just one second first and foremost to give you guys our thanks we're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. 
If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. For you personally, why, you know, this question of how people respond to rewards, um, Mm -hmm. I think is an interesting question, regardless of who you're talking to. And it's, you know, it would be fascinating to compare um, people of every major different type of vocation, right? How engineers respond to it versus um, executives versus, you know, laborers. Um, yes. What is it that really caught your eye in particular as as an academic um, with the creative professions? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting point. I think that somehow I relate a little to that. And to be honest, I cannot say that somebody uh, become an academic or choose to be a researcher uh, based on, uh, you know, the uh, financial opportunities that offer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think that was also the, uh, basically the key uh, to choose what I'm actually doing nowadays. So like I, everybody in the psychology world, you're really just studying yourself here, if I understand correctly. <laughs> I think we, tro- I think we totally relate. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think that in in, uh, in research, frequently you also have to be creative enough to uh, make things happen uh, with a very limited resource. Yes, <laughs> and, absolutely. Um, yeah, and to be honest, if I would compare my profile and interests, and uh, you know how much my um, my reward. Um, system would flashen up uh, in comparison <laughs> to other professions. I'm sure that I'm also different in that sense. Sure. Uh, so I do think that this is a very, very fascinating area because um, we know that from the experiences in life that this variability among humans exists, and uh, I think that this is this is. Um, something that is coming more and more into light nowadays that we actually starting to explore more the uh, inter-individual variability. And this is something that I, that I truly like. So, yeah, I do this also with um, regard to disorders. And I think this is a, a very, very interesting way of seeing the, um, the measures that we ac- acquire from from different experiments. So I can always evaluate a group by setting an average and seeing how much that varies from from the average instead mm. of the deviation. But does this really represent every single individual having there? Let's say I put artists together with uh, researchers and I don't know um, maybe some banking. Um, colleagues inside of the same um, basket and I evaluate their reward system, does this really um, give me an accurate evaluation 
of this mix of people that are in there? Um, perhaps not. Perhaps we're just meaning down to the, um, you know, to what represent in the group, but we're not really looking at the subtle differences that exist in the subgroups. Mm. And yeah, and maybe, yeah, maybe I went a bit out, but um, this is more or less what I think it's also fascinating about this investigation. Yeah, well, so I mean, I think that's a good segue. And I know just from talking to you that you very respectfully are hesitant from drawing too many um, strong conclusions. Uh, on a study of this size, um, can you talk a little bit about where you think you know the study might um, might be prone to some biases right now, and and maybe what the future plans are for how you would like to do a larger scale study to to get to the bottom of these questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here, I didn't really have too many um, availability of artists where I am. And I have to say, we tried a lot to contact um, many, many people. Um, and frequently, um, we just didn't really have a reply. Uh, so basically, what we had to do is uh, we had to recru recruit and uh, include in, in, the, in the sample analysis um, everybody that had a minimum of quality of data. So I could not be truly selective with this uh, sample size. But I think one important point would be for a uh, larger follow-up study that also the uh, socioeconomic um, um, yeah, level of each participant would also be controlled. We don't have this controlling here. So uh, we just simply acquired you know, the sample of people who showed up and evaluated them. Uh, but I think it's actually playing a very important role as well. Uh, to how people respond to monetary rewards, where they are coming from. So are they coming from a family that really struggled from this this person very... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know, just someone just fell in my kitchen. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds awesome. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> okay. Okay, so what I was trying to say is uh, basically we have to control as well for um, how wealthy uh, somebody is, how much money this person makes, and also to which level, socioeconomic level, this person's coming from, from yep. the family and from the self-experience. Uh, self, um, yeah. Well, so how, I mean, what would it involve? I mean, what are the mechanics in your world to actually be able to get to do a study that would, uh, I mean, presumably you're talking about going from, I don't know, you're, you're, you, how many were in this study right now? So we have, um, 12, um, from each group. So yeah. 24 in total. Yeah. So I would imagine to get statistically significant information across that sort of socioeconomic spectrum, um, you're talking at least hundreds, if not thousands of participants. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that with hundreds we can totally make it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair yeah. enough. We'll keep it reasonable. Yeah. So what's exactly. so what is the process for you to be able to actually um, get a study like that in play? Yeah, uh, first um, it generally always involves um, selling an idea. So I do have with this small study that was very successful in finding differences 
across groups already with this size, which is a relatively, you know, acceptable, but still small size for uh, this technique. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a first step achieved. So I could basically also ask for funding to uh, run a much bigger and expensive, more expensive study mm. in which this would also be taken into account and um, also include um, other interesting points because something about very curious and interesting about uh, science is that the moment you try to answer one question, you just realize you have um, 10 other questions <laughs> to be answered. Right, right, uh, right. So, uh, it really, it really develops in this line. So that's what I think is always so fascinating about this. Um, and so we would also integrate different pieces that we could not really solve or understand from this approach into uh, a more um, well-designed and uh, complete study. Um, yeah. So basically, one apply for funding, and then uh, one. Yeah, if this this funding is actually successfully uh, achieved, so is is when all the um, finally we celebrate and then we start working very hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right, <laughs> one one yeah. good night down at the pub, and then you're <laughs> putting exactly. in hard work on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> especially because it's also uh, linked to a very very strict deadlines and. Uh, more or less like anything else in life um we plan something but we not always directly land where uh, we planned <laughs> right so uh, right. there's all sort of um, really unexpected events happening and the i think the magic on it is just to make it continue and and you know finding also creative solutions down the road yeah mm-hmm. yes yeah, so one last thing, I mean, on that topic of sort of how these how these questions just keep spiraling outward. I mean, one of the things that I've always found really interesting about the art world, and this largely comes from my personal history and my family history, we have um, a fairly high prevalence of of some mental disorders, some depression and anxiety and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've noticed... Um, just sort of anecdotally in my life that the people that I know who are creative and, you know, the, the, the crowds that I've run in that are creative also sort of has this tends to have this high coincidence of mental disorder. Um, and you know, this is something that's also fairly well documented with, you know, the, the great classical musicians and, um, you know, obviously Van Gogh cutting off his ear probably had something going on, you know, um, so I'm curious from your perspective how, you know, as as an academic and as a psychologist, but also someone interested in the in the art world, how do you try to sort of separate, you know, right there in my head, it feels like socioeconomic status, um, mental disorders, or, or uh, you know, even the um, pre-existing condition to mental disorder and creativity are so tightly locked together and interwoven um do you think it's even possible to separate those variables from each other Mm, perhaps not really in a clear way i don't i don't think we will um be able to um really disentangle this complex um association with so many many uh systems that are playing a role um 
because generally the way we approach this from the scientific world is like we try uh, to have um, a comparison by just simply manipulating one of the variables and evaluating what is actually leading to, but that the complexity is so high that um, you you cannot really control for all the possible variables. We can just simply as um, casually not really, uh, I think, achieve so many conclusions in that sense, what is really causing what. However, we can uh, always look for associations, and this is this is true. I mean, um, there are much evidence that many many neurotransmitters that are involved with the geniality of uh, special uh, people that we know from from historical or uh, artistic uh, um, important uh, representatives. Uh, they. Um, all were brilliant from one side and extremely creative and admired for that, but on the other side um, had uh, very important personal uh, suffering. And this uh, suffering from psychiatric side uh, is perhaps to be seen as a trade-off um, of also being able to perceive and interact with the world in this um, special manner. Hmm. What I'm saying is um, we frequently see uh, that um, the, the magic of creativity is also followed up by, um, I don't know, alterations in the uh, emotional uh, circuitry that uh, could be related as well with affective disorders or uh, anxiety disorders as well as schizophrenia. And I, especially here in psychiatric hospital, um, can absolutely um, um, see both sides. Hmm. And um, I think that um, slowly we are we are being able with the, um, we, we talked about technology before, so uh, a couple of decades ago, nobody would imagine we would just so easily measure the reactivity of the nucleus accumbens uh, the way we do. Mm. It could be that in the future, we will also um, have the tools, the correct tools to measure and also understand interpreted this complexity uh, and and also perhaps understand better this relationship that certainly seems to exist uh, and perhaps prevent that people that um, are more prone to be extremely creative or perhaps even extravagant would um, be susceptible or more susceptible to uh, very various um, suffering episodes. Yeah. such as mental disorder itself. It's, I mean, it's so fascinating. And I would have to assume for you, um, it's as interesting as it is frustrating how uh, how complex that equation gets, right? I mean, there's, um, it, <laughs> it yeah. is yeah. strange and yeah. beautiful as the creative mindset is. It seems like it does always or, or very often um, come with a lot of those sort of uh, gotchas, right? Like there's mm -hmm. everybody wants to chase the brilliance of a of a brilliant artist, but you don't always know 
the misery they're going through at night or the financial strife that they're in or um, what it may be. So it makes for a very interesting but very frustrating topic. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Roberta, this this has been uh, a super interesting um, conversation and one that I really hope – you know, I'm uh, – I'm a big fan of what you're trying to do, and I hope that uh, that you really can lock down some funding for some further study because I think this is such an interesting topic, but also, um, you know, it's really relevant today. I, we're obviously out here in Silicon Valley, and a lot of people are talking about what the future of work looks like with with automation and. Um, you know, everybody thinks the the robots are coming to steal all of our jobs, which may or may mm-hmm. not happen. But one thing that people are pretty sure about is that, um, you know, jobs that involve creativity and um, creative problem solving are going to be more and more important over the coming years. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, at a macro level, what that means if people are, <laughs> you know, if the jobs that require you to be creative also happen to attract the people that um, are less motivated by money. What does that do to the job market? What does that do to the economy? What does that do for employers? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that this work is only going to become more and more relevant over the next 50 years. So I, you know, I wish you the best and I hope that, um, that you can continue in this line of work. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, um, I really, really happy to um, be here today and I, I'm very excited to share this initial um results that we had and yeah. i'm i'm very always very very excited and a most enthusiastic person in this uh, area of research <laughs> uh i yeah i think there's still a lot that we can do and there's still a lot that we have to learn and i think you're absolutely correct in the sense that this is becoming every day more and more relevant um because of the profile of um, of the world that we are more or less creating for ourselves yeah. in the future. Mm-hmm. So before I let you go, uh, we usually do a couple rapid fire questions at the end just for fun, just to get inside your head a little bit and who you are. Do you have a couple more minutes to do a few fun rapid fire questions? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. And first, I got to check my research on this because I don't want to embarrass myself. But I'm assuming you're Spanish, based up on your name and accent. Am I correct? That's that's wrong. It's wrong. That's wrong. Ah, yes, man. Where are you from? I'm from Brazil. Ah, oh man. I'm originally from Brazil. Yeah. Well, I have embarrassed myself entirely. Yeah, that's bad. (laughs) But actually, both of my surnames are originally Spanish. Yeah. So in that in that sense, that's okay. But believe it or not, I can usually tell by the name at least the difference between Brazilian and Spanish. But this time, I've embarrassed myself. Well, so all right, even better. Then tell me. All right, first rapid fire question is. What is the best Brazilian food that Americans have never heard of? Huh. Feijoada. Have you heard of that? I don't think I have. What is it? Yeah. So uh, so it's some sort of um, beans, black beans, okay. uh, cooked in a sauce, and we eat that with rice and some other complicated things for you to imagine, such as manioc um, flour. And yeah, it's, it's actually beautiful. Very you should nice. try that. Oh, I'm going to find my local Brazilian restaurant here in San Francisco yeah. and, and pretend I can pronounce it. 
I'm going to have feijoada, to just... Feijoada, yes. <laughs> feijoada. 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 Feijoada, yes, gotcha. Exactly. Well, okay. I'm going to have to replay this episode whenever I go into the restaurant because there's no way that I'm going to remember that. But I am excited <laughs> to try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. A second yeah. rapid fire question, and this is pretty universal no matter where you're from in the world. Are you a Beatles guy or a Rolling Stones guy? Oh, Rolling Stones. Yeah? But I like Beatles very much, yes. Very nice. A little more rock and roll. I like that. I feel like I'm getting yeah. to know more about you here. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All right. And last but definitely not least, what is your best World Cup memory from this last World Cup? Oh, I don't have much memories, to be honest. I think it was a pretty... Um, um, how can I say that? So regenerative. I think it was so um, different from everything else that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think I really had a best moment. I had <laughs> many of the worst moments, but I cannot <laughs> name a best moment, to be honest. I was going to say, uh, you know, I wrote these questions down, and <laughs> if I would have known correctly that you were Brazilian ahead of time, that question probably would have been a little different. Uh, <laughs> this is not this is a rough one for you guys this year huh <laughs> i think this year was much much better than the previous year yeah. the previous years to be honest because <laughs> I, and, and i was lucky enough to also have a dual citizenship uh really right before the uh last world cup in brazil oh wow so nice. I, I i pretended i wasn't brazilian at that time <laughs> Because, yeah, that was really, really bad. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> well, R Roberto, this has been a lot of fun. Um, how can how can our listeners kind of stay tuned? What should they be looking at for your work coming up? Okay. Uh, so we have uh, some interesting new studies going on. And um, there's a lot you can find on uh, what we develop here by just simply Googling uh uh, SNIP Göttingen, S-N-I-P, from Systems Neuroscience and Imaging in Psychiatry. Cool. Göttingen. So uh, there we have a list, uh, description of uh, what is actually happening. Uh, and, of course, I always welcome um, very motivated people and creative people to join forces. And this is always very, very important for me, especially um, regarding some interfaces of um, computer, uh, com computational neuroscience and also um, engineering. And I know that you uh, have that degree, I think. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. Right? Um, and uh, I really enjoy people that actually mix different um, areas of interest and they always have a lot to contribute so yeah great just have a look great well we will um we'll put the your contact information then in the uh show notes so listeners if you're interested in learning a little bit more or uh even potentially joining forces with roberto please check that out roberto thank you so much for your time this has really been a pleasure okay it's been a pleasure to me too thank you so much have a great day yeah you too bye as always, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this week's podcast. Uh, Roberto was such an interesting guest. And, you know, this topic of psychiatry and psychology and where it overlaps with, uh, with the creative world is something that is near and dear to my heart. So uh, for me personally, it was so great to talk to Roberto. Um, but this, uh, this question of 
uh, are artists actually predisposed to being less interested in money is, is a fascinating question. So I hope you found this interesting. If you want to learn a little bit more about Roberto and his work, um, please check out the show notes. Uh, I'm not going to spell out the links and stuff because they're difficult to, to do and it's not going to help you to listen uh, over the radio. But please check out the show notes. Um, it sounds like he has plenty more interesting work coming up um, and he's looking for people to work with and, and even artists to volunteer and things like this. So um, please get a hold of him if you're interested at all in his work. As always, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to help us out, if you're so moved, if you like what we're doing, please rate and review this episode wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. Uh, it, it helps us grow. It helps other listeners like you find us, If assuming that you like what we're doing. Um, we would really appreciate it. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Herman, and this has been State of the Art. <laughs>